either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Seven new movies to talk about this week. Kind of a good variety all over the place. Uh, some in the big screens, some for streaming, and we'll dig in. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. We're from MadWolf.com. Let's start with the latest in the DC superhero universe. It continues the story of teenage Billy Batson, who, upon reciting the magic word, is transformed into his adult superhero alter ego, Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Children stole the power of all the gods. This is very personal, Billy. Your world will not survive this. I don't know how we fight powers like this. Everyone can be worthy. Let's give it a chance. Now go fight for your family. Go fight for the world. I just threw a truck at a dragon. I love my life. So the writers and director are back from part one, which mm-hmm. was 2019, which I thought was a pleasant surprise. When that came out, I immediately thought it was one of the best of the DC superhero films. I thought it was a blast. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. It took a, a completely just different approach. And it, a little bit it reminded me of the the difference between the Spider-Man movies and the other Marvel movies is that the both films embrace the fact that their point of view character was a high school kid was mm-hmm, a kid mm-hmm. and i think one of the the charming you know aspects of the first Shazam is is that sort of really upbeat adolescent dumbass fun that that the film had it was is a really good hearted film yeah and then when it gets away from the teenagers and then when he becomes Shazam mm-hmm. the superhero then i think that character is reminiscent of Ant-Man in the Marvel. It's got that offbeat, self-deprecating, I'm kind of a goofball yeah. kind of thing going on. Well, he's a kid. He is a kid. But so that, that has it both going on for them. When he's yep. when he's got the the kid version, and of course the original uh, film dove into his backstory mm-hmm. and how he got to be the superhero. Mm-hmm. But not only are we past that now, if you remember, at the end of the first one, he not only was a superhero, but all of his family, that whole house. Remember, he lived in that big house yep. with all those kids. Yep. So we've got a lot of extra superheroes now, too. Yeah, because that's one of the things that, the, that you know, he, he loves his family and he shares. And so that's what he did was he just he shared his powers with mm-hmm. all of his foster siblings because right. he, he was raised in, in foster care. And in this film, he is about to age out of foster care, and so he's become a little clingy with his family. But really, I think part of the problem, maybe the biggest problem with this movie, is that six superheroes and six alter egos. It's a lot. And three villains. Yeah. It is a lot to keep track of. And, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that the film, it didn't have a bloated runtime that you often get, especially yeah, just in the a little sequel. over two hours. Yeah. Just a little over two hours, but still... Every one of the characters is given such um, such superf- superficial treatment mm-hmm. that, it, I mean, you feel it. You feel like we're spending 
too much time not getting anywhere with all of these characters, and wouldn't it be better if we just spent a little bit more time on an actual plot? Yeah. The uh, as, as I mentioned, the filmmakers are back. Director David F. Sandberg returns. The writers Henry Gaden and Chris Morgan return as well. And so does the star Zachary Levi. And much like Paul Rudd in the Ant-Man character, I think he has this nail. Oh, yeah, he's perfect. Yeah, he's he's a great choice, and he continues. He has the same... Just, you know, really jubilant sort of humor about him. He mm-hmm. still, he nails the character. And the, you know, the new characters include Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren yes. is a DC villain. And apparently because she enjoyed the first movie so much yes. that she wanted to be a part of this. She has said in interviews that she's, never, awesome. she's never had any interest in being in a comic book movie ever. And then she, she did. She saw the first Shazam. She thought, how charming is this? And she wanted to be involved. And she's great. Because she's very unexpected, yeah. You know, and there are the, the movie has tons and tons of little, you know, a l- little nods to other movies, other franchises. I mean, he talk they talk about, you know, the Marvel movies. They talk about the other DC movies. But one of my favorite things is he's talking right to Helen Mirren. He says, "I've seen all of the Fast and Furious movies," which is funny because she's she's, <laughs> she's in some. Yeah, but right. you know, it's right. she's um she's wonderful as you would expect her to be. It's fun to see her beat up on some people. She gets beat up too. Right. I mean, she takes a hit, which is surprising. It is yeah, kind of surprising. You can't hit her, right? <laughs> no, but so, but she's fun, and yeah, she so, and Lucy Liu is is her. Uh, yeah, because the two of them, it's it's Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu, and they are the daughters. Of Atlas. Yes. And they have come over because at the end of the first movie, Shazam opened up a realm between these two worlds, and now they're coming over and they want some power to take back to their realm, maybe to use for good, maybe not. Right. And then, yeah. And what ha- what we didn't know is that they have kept Jumun Hunsu, mm-hmm. their prisoner, right. all of this time. And so we get a chance to spend a little bit more time with cranky Jumun Hunsu, the wizard. <laughs> and he's fun. He's funny. And he he uh, he actually develops a relationship with uh, probably the best character in the movie, played by that kid from It. Yeah, Jack Dylan Grazer, who go. has been, he's been good since the as the first time I've ever seen him. Yeah. And of course, as the kids do, he's growing up now. Yeah. But, but he, he is. He's got a real natural chemistry with material and with his other actors, pretty much everything I've seen him in. Yeah, and I think, you know, he was really the heartbeat of the original film. He was, he, yeah, I he mean, was. he absolutely was, and he's the kid that you spend the most time with, yeah. because, of course, Shazam, you, you mainly are with the adult version. So, and he's, he's again, the, the kind of the core of this of this story, but he doesn't get as much to do, although he does have a funny relationship with uh, Jumun Hunsu's wizard. And the kid has, he also has great comic timing. He does. You know, you, you can't really teach, it's hard to teach, and he has had it since the beginning, and he's really good. And he has a, he has a crush on uh, Maria from West Side Story. Yes, she's joined the, she's joined the cast here, and she's, it's good for her that she looks so young. She still does. <laughs> yes, she does. easily passed for a high school student. Rachel Zegler. I mean, she was great in West Side Story, obviously, but she really is, a, she does a good job in mm-hmm. this movie. And um, and it's just nice to see him have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think, I mean, I think that to a certain degree you're invested in all the characters, especially if you saw the first movies, because you are continue to be invested in those characters. If you didn't see the first movie, I'll be honest with you, you're going to be a little lost. See, that's the thing that people always ask. They ask me this morning mm-hmm. on, the, on the radio morning show that I call, and people always want to know that. I'm like, well... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you kind of do. There's especially here because there are so many characters, and and even if they do a little bit of helping you along, but still, you are gonna. It's not going to going to mean as much to you. So, and and I think 
if you saw the first one, I think most people that did enjoyed it. Yeah. So you'll enjoy it more because this is not as good as the first one. It's still fun. It's just not as fun, but you probably still will enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty slight. It really is, but it's not a bad movie. And and I'm, I'm happy to see that they continued. They didn't take it dark. You know, right. they continued in the same vein as the first. Yeah, exactly. And stick around, of course. And stick around, of course. You're going to have a mid-credits scene and an after-credits scene and also a, uh, a cameo mm-hmm. from, a, from another, let's say, a well-known DC superhero that shall remain nameless uh, in this as well. So, yeah, you'll probably enjoy it, especially if you liked part one. This is Shazam! Fury of the Gods out everywhere now. All the theaters. <laughs> Much different film next out in theaters this weekend. Nemo, a high-end art thief, is trapped in a New York penthouse. After his heist doesn't go as planned, locked inside with nothing but priceless works of art, he must use all his cunning and invention to survive. This is Willem Dafoe, pretty much a one-man show in Inside. Okay, you got seven minutes. Stay focused. The art in here is worth millions. Proceed to step two. if it were on fire. I answered my sketchbook, my ACDC album, and my cat Groucho. I didn't mention my parents or my sister. Does that make me a bad person? Cats die. Music fades. But art is for keeps. an actor you know i want to see whatever he's in i want to see everything he's in he's never not been great yeah and this is a film that really that lives or dies by how well the main actor pulls it off because it is almost a one-man show in the beginning when he's going into the penthouse to steal the art he's talking to someone an accomplice on a walkie-talkie and then the really the only other interaction that you see willem dafoe has are in flashbacks now, all the other rest of the time, he's by himself in this penthouse because he's in to steal this art. The uh, owner of the penthouse is apparently out of the country for a long time. So that's why they choose now to uh, to break in and steal these priceless works of art. But once, once he gets in there, he finds out really the one that they were targeting, the most, most priceless work, a self-portrait by whoever, uh, is not there. And that confuses both uh, Defoe and the guy he's talking to on the walkie-talkie. So then they, they stall for some time a little bit. And before you know it, the security system that his friend on the other end of the walkie-talkie has hacked into goes haywire and alarms start going off and doors start shutting. And before you know it, he is trapped inside, just like the title says. And then he has to start trying to get out, trying to get somebody's attention, and then as the time goes on, just try to survive because he just can't. He can't find a way out. He can't get anyone's attention. He sees people on the closed-circuit TV. He sees security guards in the building and cleaning people and things like that, uh, but he can't get anyone's attention, and he has to survive and, and try both mentally and physically as the time goes on. So the biggest thing about this movie, it's, it's directed by Vasilis Katsupis, uh, also, uh, he's not a writer, but he's credited with uh, an idea. Writer is Ben Hopkins. 
And the main thing about this is, if you go, just don't expect a heist type of movie. Oh, right. he, he got in and now he's got to evade the authorities because they're going to come. He's got to get out. No, that this it's not that type of movie at all. It becomes a character study and and a philosophical character study. And there's metaphors going on with this building. And I don't want to say too much more without spoiling it, but just just do not expect any sort of a heist excitement type of movie it's it's not that at all but uh, like you said uh, the actor is so good that he keeps you invested in it and just when it starts to tire out you know okay get on with this already then it takes the turn that starts letting you know okay exactly what's going on here but yeah Defoe is just he's so great that he's able to do this take a one-man show like this and make it uh, and make it worthwhile not it's not gonna be everybody's bag but like I say as long as you don't show up thinking that, oh, the trailer made you think it's a heist movie and he's going to you know have a big shootout or something at the end. None of that. None of that at all. But uh, for these kind of character studies and for a great actor at work, uh, this, this certainly fits the bill. And it's called Inside, and it's now in theaters. Let's go to a historical drama next. This one's streaming on Hulu. Loretta McLaughlin was the reporter who first connected the murders and broke the story of the Boston Strangler. She and Jean Cole challenged the sexism of the early 1960s to report on the city's most notorious serial killer. This is called Boston Strangler. Everything lines up with him. His history, the progression of the crimes, everything. You know how many people I've gone down the rabbit hole with? It's a dead end every time with this case. What do you think you're going to find out there? When is this going to stop, Loretta? I need you to call in a favor. Be quick. I don't want to get fired tonight. Any lawyer worth a dime would pick this apart. You really want to use this paper to tear down the police department? If anyone else was blowing it this badly, we'd have put it on the front page a long time ago. I need you to take down an address. If I don't call back in an hour, give it to the police. Loretta! There's more than one lunatic out there, and you're going to get us both killed. Your safe little world is just delusion. Now, this is interesting, I think, because the title sort of throws you off because it is about the case, but it's not about the killings as much as it is the work that went into breaking the story, much like a spotlight. Yes, exactly. You know, this movie reminds me of a lot of different movies. It reminds me of Spotlight. It reminds me of Zodiac Yeah, um, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways because it's more investigative than it is uh, situated with the actual murders or the victims. Mm-hmm. I like that about it. Yeah. But it also reminds me of these movies of, you know, historical accurate movies where I think to myself, how did I never know that? How did I never know that the people who broke the Boston Strangler story were both women? How did I never know that? It's never come up. And not only that, that, that's a very good point. But not only that, but if you would have come up to me the day before I saw this movie and said, who was Albert DeSalvo? I would have said, oh, he was the Boston Strangler. Right. And this movie wants you to say, a lot of people probably think that, and maybe you're right, and maybe you're not. There's a lot of facts to break into. And one of the things, the writer-director here is Matt Ruskin, and one of the things that surprised me right away was not to see that, or was to see that this script was not adapted. It wasn't based on a book, yeah. Right, I thought for sure with all this history going on and digging into all these facts that it must have been adapted by a book, but it wasn't. Yeah, no, that is amazing because the the meticulous uh, research that had to have gone into this, you would have expected there to be a book involved. Yeah, and maybe it's a a side passion for him. I mean, this this book, this book, this movie certainly reminds you of today's 
today's uh, appetite for true crime. Yes, absolutely. Because that's sort of how the movie makes you think this this all got started, because Loretta McLaughlin was working for the Boston Record American newspaper in the early 1960s, but she was put on the lifestyle beat, you know, yeah. the quote-unquote woman's beat, right. right? But she had this interest in this story, and she thought all these these stranglings, these killings were were connected. And the, she only got permission from her editor, played by Chris Cooper. The always wonderful Always Chris great Chris Cooper. She only got permission from her editor to work on the story on her own time because he was like, no, you're not going to write about yeah. this. And then when she started making some headway and getting some leads, then, you know, she was a nobody and yeah. ran into a lot of brick walls. That's when the veteran Streetwise reporter, Gene Cole, came in and they teamed up and she, Gene Cole knew how to open some doors and grease some palms and get things moving. So um, they they made a great team, as the actors do, too, because Carrie Coon plays a Gene Cole with Kira Knightley as McLaughlin, mm-hmm. and they're both great. They are great, and they, they play off each other very well. They do. One of them, you know, doesn't, she, she's just, this is what she does for a living. She doesn't see it as a glamorous thing. She doesn't have any sort of, look at me, give me a chance. She just, that is, this is just her job. And you Whereas, know, that's Carrie Coon. Yeah. She does a great job with that, whereas, you know, Kira Knightley, and she's very good at this, being sort of, indignant and angry but one of the she gets off the best lines she the does. lines that you should be thinking whereas you know the 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 editors were like this is not a story and she says how many women have to die before it becomes a story and i feel like one of the things i loved about this movie is that it really does not beat you over the head with the sexism the sexism jumps out at you mm-hmm. it's true the, you know dead women didn't make for that much of a story right. especially if they weren't glamorous women at the time at the beginning of the boss strangler they were these older women who lived far apart who yeah. were as it turns out just easy victims yeah and not only that but it it also draws upon the police corruption of the time that that hurt the case and yeah. makes a a nicely subtle bridge to today yeah um without beating you over the head with it and another thing i liked about the gene cole character you mentioned uh the fact that she was you know, she treated it as a job and she yeah. knew the ropes. On the same time, she knew the fact that the the fascination with them being women and, you know, not, not let's face it, not ugly women. If she had to use that, then they were going to take pictures. Hey, these two women, she was going to go along with it because of the of where they were, where they could end up. Whereas Kira Knightley was a little bit more indignant, like you yeah, said. Yeah. But then the the uh, the other character with a little bit more experience said, "You know what? We this this may be how we have to do it to let them, you know, let them put us on the headline." Uh, and she knew that it served. It was going to serve a, a greater purpose, which was interesting because in the end, she was kind of, in a way, she was kind of playing them, you know, to get where she wanted to go. But in the long term, she was wrong. And she had to go in and tell them to take the pictures off because these two women were in now in jeopardy. Right. Because the newspaper decided this would be the better way to sell yeah. newspapers. Well, so it was, but it's a great pull and uh, yeah. a tug of war exactly. between doing what can further your career mm-hmm. and doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a great way to put it, and it does go back and forth, and and that's why the script. I think one of the the ways the script is effective. With these two characters and these two actors, and let's also mention Alessandro Nivola. Oh yeah, he shows another up. one who's just always welcome I in know, every movie. Always, and he plays a a detective who ends up being sympathetic to what they're doing and is helpful to the case. Uh, so all in all, it's it's well done. I would say it's more compelling than it is thrilling. Yeah, I, I think mean, there's so too. a couple of areas of suspense, things like that. But again, it's not so much about the the killings; it's about the work that went into the story. 
um, which is and it's always good to get reminded of the the importance of the press and mm-hmm. the importance of digging for of the, a good press. Yeah, of a good press. And then we've seen these these movies do that. And we just saw one with She Said. Mm-hmm. Well, some people saw it. Not many, unfortunately, <laughs> just a few months ago. But this is a good one. And it's on uh, Hulu right now called Boston Strangler. Let's go back to the theaters for a comedy about two old friends reconnecting at a funeral and deciding to get revenge on the widower who messed with them decades before. It's Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda back together for Moving On. A devoted wife and mother, a doting grandmother. Joyce was a wonderful woman. Joyce. 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 This is Claire, one of Joyce's oldest friends. They were at college together. Claire. Howard. I'm going to kill you. Now that she's gone, I'm going to do it this weekend. Evelyn, I need to talk to you. About what? I told him I was going to kill him. I could chat. Yeah, really just weeks after Lily and Jane were together for the movie that turned out to be a a pretty big hit, 80 for Brady, Mm -hmm. This is another comedy, and I think we both agree the material is much more fitting of their legendary status. Yes, absolutely, because I think, and and we've talked about it before, there is really, uh, you know, a minor wave in cinema of movies starring veteran actors that really just is like, oh, look how funny old people are. Let's, mm-hmm. you know. When they're talking about sex or dropping the F-bomb. Right, or let's, yeah. let's. Let's hand a multi-Oscar winner a uh, fanny pack and have her call it a strap-on right. repeatedly because that's hilarious when old people don't understand the terminology. It's, that's so weak. It's offensive, yeah, really. It's, it's, it's so insulting. weak and lazy, but it, I'm glad the movie was We're yeah. talking about 80 for Brady. Yeah. And, I, hey, I'm glad it was a hit, but, yeah, it, was, it wasn't worthy. This is much more actual comedy about yeah. actual people. Yeah, and it's not that kind of broad, zany comedy, although you might expect that from the from the synopsis of the film. It isn't. It's, you know, it's almost a push to call it a comedy. I would call it probably a dramedy. Uh, and the two of them, they run into each other at a funeral uh, The had been the uh, a woman who had been their college roommates. And Jane Fonda's character, Claire, has gone to the funeral specifically with the intention of of murdering the widower, uh, played by Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, and that's, I'll, I'll tell you, in, in the trailer, that's attention getting. She just tells him to his face, I'm going yeah, to she kill does. you. Whoa. Yep, yeah, she does. <laughs> and uh, and Lily Tomlin's character is also there. Uh, and the two, they've all been estranged for many years, and Lily Tomlin's character is there. And she has her own sort of bombshell to drop at a certain point. And, you know, it's it's... It's the kind of thing where while there is a sex scene and while there there is some foul language, it's it's all actually from the point of view of it, it just is realistic to a degree that, well, older people have all of the same right experiences that everybody right. else does. Not it's the fact not, that ooh, I know they're ooh, talking about it's sex. so crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's and I really, really appreciated that. Um, but it's also realistic. It's more realistic about certain things. For example, living in assisted care mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, not being able to do what you used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. It's not a joke about, you know, oh, my hip. It's actually, you know, uh, uh, Lily Talman's character had been in an orchestra level musician and because of injuries and arthritis is no longer sure. able to play the cello. And yeah. it's really quite sad. I think that the movie tries to do too many things. The subplots are thin, they don't go anywhere, and they seem unnecessary, but 
um, Jane Fonda and in particular Lily Tomlin are great in this. Lily Tomlin has she spends a lot of the the film actually alone and and on purpose to sort of show how isolating and lonely uh, elderlyhood can be. Mm-hmm. And she's just magnificent at it because. She, it's not what you expect because Lily Tomlin is always the coolest person in the room. She just is. <laughs> well, this is a uh, writer director Paul Weitz, mm-hmm. and he did not only did he do about a boy, but a few years back he basically wrote Grandma for Lily Tomlin. Yeah, it's you know he's clearly a fan. No, I clearly, think that, yeah. I think that you get that from this movie, mm-hmm. and um and it's not it's a bit it's a little bit broad. It's a little bit slight. To be honest with you, I didn't think the payoff was as satisfying as I was hoping that it would be. But it is a real joy to see these two actors do something together with material that they deserve. Oh, and also shout out to Richard Roundtree. Yes, Richard Roundtree. And a very different role for him. Very charming. Yeah, very nice to see. So, yeah, yeah, much better material here and very well appreciated. That is in theaters now called Moving On. Let's go to Netflix for an animated family adventure comedy. An orphaned boy is told by a fortune teller that an elephant will help him find his lost sister. This is The Magician's Elephant. And now, the elephant! (laughs) This elephant will lead me to my sister. I must ask you to give her to me. What if... Peter does a series of impossible things. He gets the elephant. It is my destiny. My sister lives. And I will find her. Extraordinary things are possible. If you believe. This is from a Kate DeCamilla book. And um, mm-hmm. I was hoping for more. I was, too. It's the debut as a director for Wendy Rogers. She's been a longtime visual effects uh, specialist, not only in animated films, but uh, but in live-action films as well. So now uh, taking the helm uh, as director for the first time. And, yeah, it's it's fine, but it is. I wouldn't call it, ironically, magical. There's really not much magical about it. The story is pretty... It's pretty stuffed. It's, it gets pretty convoluted as the uh, the young boy who's voiced by Noah Jupe. Always nice. like Noah Jupe. I always like the Joe and Jupe. Yeah, he's looking for his long lost sister, and he's he's told by this fortune teller that the, he gets one one uh, question. He uses this the meal money for both he and the the uh, old soldier voiced by Manny Patinkin who raised him. Use that meal money for one question for the fortune teller is follow the elephant. Well, there are, all no, there are no elephants in their land of Baltice where they live. But then a magician uh, voiced by Benedict Wong makes one fall from the sky. And there's the elephant. So then the young boy Peter asks the king, voiced by Asif Manvi, to let him take the elephant. And to be granted permission to do that, he has to fulfill three impossible tasks given to him by the king. And that's really the the very generic lesson here that nothing is impossible. Believe in yourself, believe in your dreams. Nothing wrong with that. It's just very generic and very broad. But at the same time, I just in your explaining the plot, it's a convoluted plot. It, it is. It's a lot it is. of unnecessary extra characters. There's a lot happening that I just don't think the film takes advantage of, although you, you mentioned, I think, the three best, uh, Benedict Wong, Asif Monvi in particular, Manny Patinkin, those three voice actors, those three characters are interesting and fun, and you always look forward to having them on the yeah. screen. 
I don't think any of the other characters That's live true. up to that. That's true, and the voice cast also includes Brian Tyree Henry and Miranda Richardson, but the rest of it, yeah, seems very just lumped together, nothing to really differentiate them, but, the, but those three are able to really craft a, a voice characterization. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just kind of all muddled together with so many plot twists and so many characters. And really, the animation, too, is pretty stiff. I think maybe the idea was to have it resemble a children's pop-up book. That's a Se- good idea. Seems yeah. a little stiff. And also, the coloring is very drab. I understand why, because part of the, the story about this land where they live is that a bunch of strange clouds have rolled in, and that has caused people to stop believing. Again, you're like, what? Yeah. All, all right. So much of the movie is set under this cloud cover. So you have a little bit before things get going and after, where the colors suddenly pop up. Yeah. Oh, isn't that nice? So I get it. The cloudy drab is part of the story, but it just all around adds to everything being, oh, okay, yeah. it's not yeah. especially funny. No. And it's really a little... A little very broad and generic in its uh, in its messaging. But, uh, yeah, I guess it was a very popular children's book. Mm-hmm. So if you're a fan of that, um, it, it certainly is. It's in it's on Netflix. So, right. again, so if, if you, you just have, have Netflix, yeah. If it's if your weather is as bad as our weather and you're looking for something <laughs> to do with your kids this weekend. Yeah, and it's certainly not horrible by no. any means, but just kind of just like, ah, okay, fine. And that's The Magician's Elephant on Netflix now. How about a horror thriller on VOD right now? A young woman tries to find her origins after having been abandoned as an infant at a cemetery wrapped in a cloth with satanic symbols. Yikes. But as she gets closer to answers, a malevolent spirit is telling her to leave. This is leave. So that's Christian, your father, and that's your mom, Anna. Did they worship the devil or something? Can you help me? Do you know Anna Norheim? Why? She was my mother. Our family has lived on this land for five generations. Does it feel familiar? My family has kind of a dark past. My aunt, she is literalist in the bathtub. My older sister disappeared when I was four. There's evil there. Don't go there. You can't trust those people. Something is wrong. I believe I was promised Norwegian death metal. <laughs> yeah. This is Norwegian horror? It is. All right. It is Norwegian horror, and the the main character, uh, she has discovered this blanket that she was found in. And so she's tracked down what she thinks is her mother in Norway. Her mother is the lead singer of a Norwegian black metal band. Yeah. And she's decided that, though she's not going to tell her her adoptive father, who is a police officer, found her in the cemetery as a baby, took her home and raised her with his family. She doesn't tell him where she's going. He thinks she's going back to Georgetown to, to study, but instead she's going to Norway to, to confront her mother. And she finds that it's more complicated than she thinks it is, obviously. But I have to say to myself, the minute you realize that your mother was in a Norwegian black metal band, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why I was left in a cemetery in a swaddled in a blanket covered in satanic, you know, like that's it's no longer a why would she do that? Well, because (laughs) have you ever heard any of that music? But anyway, the point of the matter is none of the music that they play in the movie is Norwegian black metal. I was really disappointed in that. But that doesn't take away too much from the movie. I think that one of the things that the filmmaker does really well is to um Compare what you expect to be 
positive with what you expect to be negative and sort of pull the rug out from under you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it's a good-looking movie as well. I just don't think it's... It doesn't pack that much of a punch, and it's never particularly scary. So, I mean, I enjoyed it, and the performances are good, but it's just, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be like the best of the Shudder that we've seen lately. That's right. Oh, I said it's on, I said VOD, but no, this is on Shudder. It's on Shudder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you're right. We have been talking a lot about how, how good Shudder stuff has been lately. And this one is, again, it's not terrible. It's much like the last one we were talking right, about. Right, right. Not terrible. No, but, it's uh, fine. not that memorable either. And it is on Shudder now called Leave. And one more, an international film to talk about next. On a dark night, Zay Ming hits a pedestrian with his car and flees the scene. Desperate to escape his feelings of guilt, he decides to approach the dead man's wife, Mrs. Liang. Meanwhile, the body is discovered riddled with bullets. Chen, the detective in charge of the investigation, becomes obsessed with the case. This is Are You Lonesome Tonight? Now I'm going to Now, some of that sounds a little bit like Decision to Mm -hmm, Leave mm -hmm. that we loved so much uh, last year. But no, this is a new one, and it was reviewed at MadWolf.com by Rachel Willis. Yeah, this is a Chinese kind of thriller, noir, sort of a mystery, and it works better, actually, as a character study. The characters are fascinating, and the performances are great. It's really when you layer in the mystery that it doesn't work as well. Yeah, which is a problem for a mystery. Right. (laughs) But uh, all in all, she didn't think it was a total failure. Oh, no, she enjoyed it. I I think it was just... you you go into it thinking it's going to be one thing, a little bit like inside, and then you wind up having something else. <laughs> yeah, so more for the characters than the mystery, and that is on VOD now. And check out Rachel's full review at MadWolf.com. That's called Are You Lo- That's called Are You Lonesome Tonight? All right, lonesome for the schlocketeer. Let's go find him. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Time to check back in the lobby. Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. The Schlocketeer, keeps us up to date with the studio news and release dates. What's going on? Well, M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin will be hitting Peacock uh, for streaming a week from today. So if you haven't caught it yet, you can catch it then. Mm -hmm. And there's a Japanese remake of Cube, which is premiering on Screenbox on April 11th. Interesting. Yeah, hopefully that'll be good. Um, Robert Rodriguez's sci-fi-tinged action thriller Hypnotic hits theaters on May 12th, and that one stars Ben Affleck, Alice Braga, Jeff Fahey, Jackie Earl Haley, and William Fickner. So, interesting lineup there. Mm-hmm, yeah. Magnolia Pictures is putting out Paul Schrader's new movie Master Gardener in theaters on May 19th, and that stars Joe Edgerton, Quintessa Swindell, and Sigourney Weaver. Wow. He's, uh, Schrader's been uh, on a late-stage role here lately. He really has. I think he's already prepping another one for this year. Wow. Uh, May May 26th is the theatrical release of Nicole Holofcener's dramedy, You Hurt My Feelings. And Universal has set a June 30th release date for their latest DreamWorks animated film, which is called Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. There's a title for you. <laughs> I saw the trailer for the, the You Hurt My Feelings. That's with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, it is. Is, wow. that, is that the one? Oh, yeah, no, it, no, no, Jennifer, no. No, wait. Jennifer Lawrence is called No Hard Feelings. Very close. That, yeah, that's <laughs> what made me think. Because I saw that trailer and it looked funny. Um, it so, okay, funny. totally different thing. Got him confused. My fault. Uh, Disney has once again moved up the release date of their new Haunted Mansion movie. 
Um, it'll now bow in theaters on July 28th, and that one's kind of got an all-star cast. So hopefully it'll turn out better than the Eddie Murphy version from yeah, about 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. RLJE Films has set a July 28th release for Nick Cage's psychological thriller, Sympathy for the Devil, in which it's hinted that Nick Cage might be playing the devil. So that's kind of a uh-huh. appointment cinema there for me. <laughs> yeah. And Paramount's moved up the release of Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie by a month. It'll now come out on September 22nd. And then finally, Disney has pushed back the release of the Marvels. It had previously been set on that July date that Haunted Mansion now holds, but now mm-hmm. it's coming out November 10th. Sure. And the, in- the interesting one with this one is it's basically Captain Marvel 2, but it's going to be the first MCU movie to heavily utilize characters that were introduced on the Disney Plus TV shows. Oh, okay. It's going to be interesting to see how they juggle their introductions with general audiences yeah. and not everyone has seen those. Yeah, so. for sure. When's that again? November 10th. November 10th. All right. Okay, good stuff as always. You can catch up with the latest news from Daniel on the socials at The Schlocketeer. Thanks as always. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking ahead to next week. Oh, boy. There's a big one coming. <laughs> there maybe, is. <laughs> maybe you've seen all the commercials and all the social posts. Everybody's excited next week about John Wick 4. Also, One Fine Morning. Return to Soul. Chantilly Bridge. The Tudor. And Kubrick by Kubrick. Hmm, documentary there, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Interesting. All right, that's all next week. But what about this week? Shazam or Inside Boston Strangler moving on. Anything, uh, all that and more. Love to keep the conversation going. Easy to do that on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. That's all right there at MadWolf.com. So keep in touch. Enjoy the movies. We'll talk next week. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>